is a real thing, the ADHD industrial complex, and and it will sell you anything, you know, in the way that industrial complexes work. It offers you a solution for a price that often only reinforces the problem that it is purporting to solve. So, so many of those so-called solutions that anybody, so many people are happy to, to sell you, what ends up happening is they don't work. Inevitably, they stop working. And then they become just another site of shame and failure, which only reinforces all of the issues that you had at the beginning. You are listening to Disorderland, your psychiatrist's least favorite podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for the great feedback we got on our first episode. We have many, many ideas and plans in the works, so I hope you will stick around, subscribe, and send this episode to your group chat. Sharing the podcast is the best and most free way to support us. Today, we have a great conversation for you with our friend Marta Rose, who runs a digital peer support group we love called Divergent Design Studios. We'll talk about Marta's journey from diagnosis to critical disability theory, how creativity research and design thinking can offer us alternatives to the pathologizing framework of executive function. And we'll also discuss the possibilities and the perils of community building on the internet. But first, Aisha and I discuss the sad mental state of the wealthiest countries in the world and do a little shit talking about the updated DSM-5. Welcome to What's Hot in Disorderland. <laughs> In D land. <laughs> Do you have some D's? Because we have some D's. <laughs> okay. Do you have some D's? Because we have some D's. That's really funny, actually. Yeah, think that. That's really funny. I got, yeah. I got a lot of D's. Welcome to What's Hot in Disorderland. Do you have some D's? Because we have some D's. And do we have some news for you? <laughs> Oh, boy, because we have... Oh, boy. Mad in America reports, quote, a survey of 233,087 internet users in 34 countries that measured mental well-being found that the percentage of respondents who are distressed or struggling was highest in English-speaking regions of the world, where 30% (laughs) fell into this category. So this was a survey that was done by a nonprofit called Sapien Labs, which was founded by a couple of neuroscientists who wanted to figure out what modern society is doing to our brains, which I don't really think is that big of a mystery considering the results of the survey. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's part of something they're calling the Mental Health Million Project, which is an attempt to assess the mental state of the world. So the 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 result was basically that countries that are doing the best in terms of like GDP and money are doing the worst in terms of their mental health. <laughs> mm-hmm. The richest <laughs> countries are the saddest countries. And that makes basically. a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they say that it's because um, those are the countries that prioritize individualism and achievement. Yes. yes. And they have the highest scores for drive and motivation mm-hmm. and also the lowest scores for mood and 
outlook and social self. It, that's interesting. It's a, it's a da- I guess it's data for the stuff that we already talk about that we already know, I guess, in different ways that we talk about in the context of political issues where we talk about how colonial countries just have individualistic cultures that are very centered on the individual. And that's what capitalism does. It leads you to believe in competition since a very young age and convinces you that you're in this doggy dog world where you're alone, you're isolated, no one's going to look out for you. That you have mm-hmm. to secure your own. I mean, and it's, it is a reality to a certain extent that because you're born and, and you're not given any resources that you have to earn the right to those resources and that you're this fabricated scarcity mindset is set up that convinces mm-hmm. you, uh, again, it's not real, but it convinces you that you have to compete with your peers and people that you love and step over them to be able to achieve these like arbitrary metrics of success. And it sounds very sad as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The survey is actually online and it's called the mental well-being score test. And I took it and I got an 18.44, which puts me on the low end of the enduring bracket, which is kind of like the middle (laughs) bracket. Yeah. So the scale is, is uh, minus 100 to plus 200 and Mm -hmm. minus 100 to 50 minus 50 is distressed minus 50 to zero is struggling zero to 50 is enduring 10 to 100 is managing 100 to 150 is succeeding which is just like damn it it takes a lot to succeed yeah (laughs) and 150 to 200 is thriving who the fuck is thriving (laughs) i i want to talk to someone who got who placed anywhere between 100 to 200 and just really, yeah. you know, maybe we'll just find out in our conversation <laughs> that they're not <laughs> thriving. They just yeah, really cheat? convinced themselves that they have. They cheated on this test. <laughs> so I, I took the test as well. And I got uh, I got a very low score. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling mine up right now. It was a whopping minus 28.23 which places me in the in the orange zone of struggling which is one level below uh, one level above distress with the straight up red mm-hmm. um and it's interesting because it actually gives you a score breakdown it is what i would you know expect it to be <laughs> this is just a metric of trauma essentially so it tells me that i have a pretty good uh drive and motivation when it comes to social stuff like my social self is much better but but when it comes to my view of self, as in how I see myself and how confident I am and how great I feel about myself, that's where my score is tanked. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that yeah, is expected. I feel like that was my, the same for me too. <laughs> and I mean, we talk about this, um, you know, we should, we could do a whole episode on just the whole idea of self-love and Mm-hmm. The, the what you're led to believe again through like neoliberal wellness culture and and society where you're told that that loving yourself is some something that you can achieve on your own and that this is a, a qualifier or a prerequisite to being in community which i always mm-hmm. just it's frustrating because again um I, everyone faces trauma and everyone has different degrees of trauma but it, particularly complex childhood trauma means that you really do struggle with self-worth mm-hmm. because you just never received the appropriate amount of love and care and safety and security from your community caregivers or exposed to a lot of systemic trauma and so you mm-hmm. struggle to love yourself and 
the only way you can really get there is when other people love you and mm-hmm. you are taught essentially to eventually accept parts of yourself, which is this beautiful thing called community. But it's interesting how that's that's the reason my score takes. <laughs> yeah. But there are some suggestions. What are the suggest that you should do about your <laughs> so, struggle? Yeah, so, so it gives you a score and it's very similar to like what you see on Instagram when someone uh, sees that you're struggling on Instagram and they can report you. <laughs> and oh, what yeah. Instagram <laughs> what Instagram does is send you this alert that pops up that tells you there's a couple of helplines and stuff like that, which is just we can mm-hmm. talk about that in a in a whole episode. But this one tells you life is not easy and we all struggle sometimes. Consider seeking professional advice for potential risk areas. And then they just go. <laughs> It's a lot of very stereotypical lingo, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that all ends consistently with it is recommended that you talk to a mental health professional about these challenges. And and if you feel that treatment is appropriate, then then make sure that you get some, basically. <laughs> so Go it to is therapy. Yep. <laughs> yep. So it's, it's turning me to a certain solution, which... I think we've talked about in our last episode as not being the only solution or even a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of instead of talking to you about the social context of what you exist in, it does tell you that like you need help, like you need mm-hmm. to go get help, you need to go get like fixes and and cures for yourself, and you need to talk to a professional. As though that will actually fix the problem when the context of of my trauma is going to be ever present. So the best that I can do is cope. And ultimately, what helps you cope is like community and being around people that care about you. But that's a Mm. lot harder to say than seek professional help. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I thought that like the questions, though... Like, I didn't hate it as a test because no. it was very much asking about, like, what have you experienced and, yes. like, what, how do you feel and, like, a, yeah. what's your context, you know? So, it, yeah, the, the, the test, I guess, for people, like, it, it was divided into sections and there were certain sections that asked you about your perception of self, how you see yourself. And then there was a section asking you about how motivated you are how you tackle problems in the world, like how interested you are in, in, in critical thinking, problem solving. And, and then it also goes into asking you specific questions about the environment that you grew up in, uh, what sort of, essentially what sort of um, adverse, uh, adverse trauma and other traumatic events that you were exposed to in your life that, that contributed potentially to the state that you're in. But it's interesting how the results are then individualized, right? And are reduced to mm-hmm. like you being the problem. Mm-hmm. Something else that they noted was that there was a huge difference between the mental well-being of like people aged 18 to 24 and those 65 and older. And there was no other population comparison that was as big of a gap. So like young people are doing really bad, basically. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the... And my total guess was just that we're doing a lot worse than... And it's not even within, I guess we're out of that group, but like it, we talked mm-hmm. a little bit last time about how it's so difficult learning about all of this, contextualizing your own self, understanding your struggles, understanding how to communicate your struggles and talk about your struggles in the context of social media and just a society where you grow up with this, this normalized environment where <laughs> all of the information that you obtain is just fast information and fast stimuli. And at the same time, you just need to be able to determine on your own what's okay and what's not okay. But at the same time, you're having this like process of where the information is shaping you and your identity. 
as well as like you're part of that machine that, that's shaping the information. So, and mm-hmm. it's, and it's just such a, it's such a struggle growing up in this environment where your identity is being shaped by trends, essentially. Yeah. And one of the things they also noted was that all of the people in the survey were internet users. So they also asked this question of like, what does this say about like the internet? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> well, and I guess that 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 goes back to just the use of of algorithms now and social media and feeding into uh, uh like we're only shown what we either want to see or the world that that we that they want us to see and and then that's what we majority of us especially since the pandemic i think have been constricted to socializing in certain contexts and a lot of our socializing happening in virtual spaces where we're lacking in community in real life and I guess there are consequences to not having real people that you interact with and spending so much of your time on social media. Mm -hmm. We have a new DSM that just dropped, the DSM (laughs) five TR, which is a well, it's a revision of the DSM five. They added a couple of new disorders: prolonged (laughs) grief disorder and unspecified mood disorder, which is frighteningly vague and they also (laughs) added some (laughs) new codes um that will allow clinicians to flag things like suicidal behaviors Mm -hmm. and self-injury without requiring a diagnosis they also changed some of the gender dysphoria language to be a little bit more pc like they changed cross-sex medical procedure to Mm. gender affirming medical procedure and they also employed the help of an ethno-racial equity and inclusion work group so a DEI group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to make the text work culturally sensitive, which I think there are good and bad things about this. Yeah. So, I mean, this is to contextualize this. This is in the wave of all of the uprisings in 2020 after George Floyd in the medical community in general, like just as any other space. I think there were multiple spaces getting this wave of DEI, as I call it, where suddenly because of a sensationalist media news cycles, you have the sudden interest that goes into, oh, what do we do about these problems? And these problems being the police and prison industrial complex of the carceral system. And Mm -hmm. the solutions are often reduced to, oh, we just create more pipelines of getting more black and brown people into our extremely colonial capitalist institution, and that's going to fix the problem. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes, just to talk about what this does, oftentimes all that does is increase the, the the value for the institution itself. So it's monetization for the institution, increasing their revenue and increasing their profit because now they look prettier on the surface and they've now co-opted Black Lives Matter and other social causes frequently to be able to increase their brand value. But at the same time, there's no real change that happens to the marginalized communities that need it the most and to even people working within those institutions. So whether it's an academic institution or the company. So the most marginalized folks that work within these institutions don't see any real changes, like for example, an increase in wages or the right to unionize. Really, you just have all of these programs that the money funnels money, um, uh, the company funnels money into. And then having been early on in my like academic career, like a part of these like DEI task forces and such, the bottom line is at the end of the day, you realize when it's time to make these real changes that are abolitionist reforms, for example, um, where you're trying to get more resources into the community out of the institution, you just get told, no, that's not how we do things. And then when it comes time to make real changes, 
if shut down. So this is like a very clever neoliberal systematic tactic of distraction. And it's not innocent. I think a lot of people sometimes maybe even see DEI now as like innocent, not as helpful, maybe good in the temporary short term, a Band-Aid solution. But no, it's actually a very insidious tactic. And, and it goes in line with all capitalist marketing, which is just to make the surface look prettier. While mm-hmm. And what that does is strengthen the, the, the oppressive system in the long term. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the same wave basically came into medicine where multiple specialties essentially started creating these DEI task forces. So the same happened in like my specialty in infectious diseases. And you have all of these committees popping up. And in an effort to say, again, visibly, right, and this is the politics of visibility, to say that, okay, we're doing something about it. We're working on it. We're addressing it. And mm-hmm. in psych specifically, this was one of the outcomes of having that task force. But it was a, a similar wave has happened in like multiple specialties where the language around race, for example, has been made a little bit more politically correct. Um, and mm-hmm. folks might know that race, for example, even though it's not a biological concept that's like real a real biological difference between people even though it's a social construct it's been used in medicine and biomedical research as a real biological risk factor and so some of the changes include like like what we just talked about that that change being included to contextualize race in that social cultural context and not as a biological uh variable Mm -hmm. but at the same time Mm -hmm. (laughs) this doesn't change the fact that psychiatry is a cultural colonial institution and making it a little bit prettier on the surface is and making it more palatable isn't going to lead to any long-term changes. So this is one of those reforms that doesn't really change the long-term harmful impact of the institution itself. Mm-hmm. And actually one of the psychiatrists on the task force said that she gained a greater respect for the DSM through this process mm. and that the reason that black people are misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, for example, is because the psychiatrists aren't following the directions in the DSM. Mm. And if they just followed the directions and didn't listen to their biases, then they would get a proper diagnosis. But that's not the reason <laughs> that... <laughs> you know, racism affects diagnosis just because they're not following the directions. Yeah, no, yeah. It's the entire foundation and the context of which psychiatry was created. Psychiatry was created, I mean, the whole, specifically, uniquely, I think, psychiatry is a unique branch of medicine that is that was created to use as a state tool to convince people that they're quote-unquote crazy when they are rebelling or responding to state suppression and repression. And for example, one of the first like uh, illnesses and diagnoses of psychoses was around um, a, a illness that was created called dreptomania that was seemingly only supposed to afflict escape black slaves and describing their quote unquote psychosis when they when they when they did that. And I think there's a lot of examples of that around like women and hysteria, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting because these are the foundations of the modern medical psychiatry system like that is that is how mental illness was shaped and defined and that is still the context that we work within today except now there's like you know 50 diagnoses under the umbrella of mental illness so if anything it's just been and this is why we say it's been expanded the system has been strengthened it's been emboldened and it's become Mm -hmm. a more integral part of our like cultural fabric of our society to the point where people Mm -hmm. use psychiatric diagnoses to define their entire identity and Mm -hmm. 
divert and this is where you need to think about diversity and representation and identity politics and think about like what are they doing because at the end of the day if a system is more diverse then it's actually logically harder to take down <laughs> because again it's been mm -hmm. made a little bit more palatable and i think it's interesting how now the poll for psychiatry and a lot of people that are advocating for this are folks that identify as disabled and neurodivergent that are saying that, you know, black and brown people and marginalized people, poor people, women need more diagnoses and need the DSM to be more accessible to them so they can they can access these diagnoses. And it's, it's just mm -hmm. yeah, it's just interesting how the system that you're advocating for the people that have been most brutalized by it to access <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. is this like fundamental system that was used to torture them and abuse them that is still doing the same in many aspects. And then them somehow being funneled into it isn't going to solve that problem. Yeah. It is hard though, because like diagnosis is the only way that you can access support and healthcare. So yeah. it's like, like, I mean, yeah, I can see the argument of like, like people need more access mm -hmm. to that. But I guess what we're saying is that we shouldn't have to submit to being pathologized in order to right. get support and to get care. Right. Like, and, and I think that's, and when we're thinking about where we take this from here, so if not the system, then what, we do, what do we create? We're not saying that in this, in this alternative systems and alter alternative models of care that we would build, that we wouldn't acknowledge people's suffering and responses to their systemic trauma and to a very brutal society that is causing them legitimate like mental suffering and physical pain. But we would deal with it without making the individual bear the burden and the responsibility for the pain that they're feeling. And there, when you recognize that the individual isn't responsible for all of this because they're fundamentally defective or diseased, then you also create solutions that are collective and systemic because then you actually need to solve the systemic problems that are causing their suffering if you truly believe in preventing quote unquote illness. And mm -hmm. you would also then have to build models of care that are not focused on the individual that are focused on collectively improving their community support systems and to get them access to more more community support, and not just in the form of, for example, medication that just treats the individual. So mm -hmm. it is like seeing the problem in the context of a systemic problem changes the solutions that you then develop. And right now, we're constantly seeing the problem. And the DSM is the tool of seeing the problem as being the individual, that people mm -hmm. are the problem. And if people are the problem, then treating them is the only solution. And that's the, and, and oddly, that is not a solution. Because <laughs> what we, we know, and we're going to get into this in future episodes, that, that there's a lot of people who all of this just doesn't work for, us included. Mm -hmm. And I think also a big problem is how like reliant or how the whole diagnosis process is mostly just about appeasing insurance companies because mm -hmm. they only need these like specific codes in order to like bill insurance for things. Yes. And like with gender dysphoria, for example, it's kind of a complicated issue because like, obviously like we don't want gender identity to be pathologized, but also like insurance companies won't pay for, um, like transition related care unless it's unless framed you as have a dsm code yeah, yeah so it's like it's kind yeah. of like a trap <laughs> yeah and i mean people are sometimes going in and and this is where binary well, we talked about this in, in the in social context like binaries don't work right binaries of good and bad mm -hmm. normal normal abnormal but then also like reducing your suffering to this one diagnosis that's that's very specific and arbitrary 
isn't and and oftentimes when people go in that what they're going in for are trauma responses to a very complicated complex context of the society they exist in all the experiences that they've had up until that point the ongoing systemic trauma that they're exposed to and all of that being reduced to a simple diagnosis because it's so much easier to do that just to get insurance companies to bill you for medication and we're talking Mm -hmm. about again medication that wasn't necessarily like other branches of medicine where it's there's a lot of medication that's objectively used, for example, to treat a biological disease pathology. That's not how it is in psychiatry. Medications are arbitrary and used for several conditions. And, you know, you just sort of throw a dart in the air and see where it lands. And that's mm-hmm. how medications work in psych. There are no clear guidelines where you give a specific medication because there are no clear indicators of pathology. Like there isn't, mm-hmm. you don't actually measure anything when you make a psych diagnosis. You don't actually perform a diagnostic test that has a physiological measurement of some sort. And I think that should tell people a lot about how arbitrary the process of diagnosing someone under psych is. Mm -hmm. I also wonder what you think about these like vague, this more of like a shift towards like a vagueness, like with unspecified mood disorder. Because I feel like that could be good in a way that you're not forced to like put like some kind of label on someone in order to like get them like... Uh, therapy or to build their insurance or something. Sure. But it's yeah. also just like, but it is still also a expanding. Yeah. Well, it's also expanding like the reach of like pathologization being yeah. like, well, I can just call this unspecified mood yeah. disorder, whatever it is. And like, you well, know, actually that's, that's, that's interesting because the, the vagueness is, is integral to how psychiatry has been expanded and how the mm-hmm. DSM has been created in the first place and how you have multiple diagnoses and multiple disorders that are popping up. Uh, folks maybe understand this specifically in the context of like uh, psychopathy and uh, cluster B personality disorders that like the whole construction of antisocial personality disorder and and the in what we know in, in maybe mainstream culture and, and media as quote unquote the psychopath is when mm-hmm. you look up into how it's been created, what that diagnosis is. One, there is absolutely no scientific study that has ever, ever been substantiating the claims that there exists people that are inherently born evil, <laughs> predisposed mm-hmm. to to um, irrational violence and things like that. So even though that's been constructed largely due to a very profitable niche of American media and the entertainment industry... Uh, a large part of how it was constructed by psychiatry, by uh, medical professionals, was the definition was always intentionally very broad and very vague, and um, and very and, and very intentionally vague and iffy in terms of how they how they framed it. And it's it's very purposeful because then you can start to fit anything in anybody under that category, and. Mm. So the whole, at least for, for psychopathy very specifically, and I think now we're realizing that that's the whole DSM is the purpose is to categorize individuals as abnormal that are having responses to a society that, that gets them to fall outside of quote unquote the norm. But the norm is people that fit in to capitalist colonial culture and people mm-hmm. that fall outside of the norms, either because they're responding to their trauma or because they're actually rebelling in many cases and they're pushing back against systems, they get categorized as abnormal and a lot of times pathologized. And with psychopathy, that was definitely the case in in where, for example, in the early days in like the 19th century, where the degeneracy theory was was the like foundation of psychopathy. That's when a lot of like the elite upper classes would use to classify quote unquote dangerous lower classes as psychopaths. 
and, and mm-hmm. irrational. And also similarly, when you had like the whole arc of why prison construction was justified, it was by building this, the stereotype of this black criminal. And, and so integral to that was this idea of like this, this psychopath and anything was like what you could pool any kind of digi- like divergent trait in that category, right? Anyone that rebels against systems and also mm-hmm. then add all of these animalistic traits that dehumanizes people. And now you, you've created a monster essentially. Mm-hmm. And so there is a very big intentionality around why DSM diagnoses are so, so vague and broad and overlapping in many contexts. So when you mm-hmm. have overlapping traits that cover so many different diagnoses, it's confusing because then that tells you maybe that trait is actually not significant to any diagnosis because it mm-hmm. occurs in different contexts. So mm-hmm. th- yeah, th- this is what I find very interesting about psychiatry because it's very, very intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. I got uh, told that I have an unspecified personality disorder and I was <laughs> like, well, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Something's wrong with your personality. We just don't know what it is. Um. <laughs> Yeah, and like I, I was thinking about how this connects to um, essentially bioessentialism mm-hmm. is 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 the root of like where psycho psychopathy was 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 the foundation. I guess it's this like the psychopath was seen as this missing link between apes and human beings, right? This like lesser evolved this lesser evolved human. And the identifiers, it was interesting because diagnosis is always key. And mm-hmm. psychopathy was created by people coming up with these uh, diagnostic tools that they then sold to the FBI and CIA and like police and state departments, like all over the world um, to help them, quote unquote, identify a psychopath. And it was mm-hmm. interesting because you had psychiatrists then developing these models because they were monetized and they were able to sell them as a huge industry. And it still is. And, and doing consultations, for example, being invited to, to be expert witnesses in cases. So it's a whole industry. Like that, the diagnosis mm-hmm. itself is a whole industry beyond the DSM-5. And it's a lot of it is privatized. Um, and what's mm-hmm. interesting is a lot of these diagnostic tools, the identifiers of what it is, like what is a psychopath is, again, very vague, but specifically so it can fit any identity. Whether that identity mm-hmm. is a black person, a poor person, a, a woman, like whatever it is, like whatever deviant, quote unquote, or divergent you want to fit that identity, it will. So it's a lot of it is related to how can you ma- market these diagnostic tools to the state mm-hmm. and, and make them make them tools that they can use then to round people up, criminalize them and 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 incarcerate them. It is interview time, dear listeners, and who better to bring on for our first interview than my good friend, Marta Rose, a neurodivergent educator, peer support facilitator, and artist that I met on Zuckerberg's Hell App. Marta recently started a digital peer support community, which 1010 we do recommend. There's a link in the show notes if you want to join. Marta and I are also collaborating on a YouTube channel called The Spiral Lab, and she has a ton of great live streams on there that go deeper into some of the things we touch on in this interview if this conversation leaves you wanting more. Okay, I hope you enjoy this talk as much as we enjoyed having it. Marta, I found your work on Instagram in like May of 2020. And I remember I found this post of yours that said, uh, here, I have it right here. 
Historically, for most successful male artists and businessmen, executive function was just a fancy term no one had thought of yet for having a wife. Hashtag fuck executive function. And I read this and I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) It like immediately upset me. But I also realized that like I didn't really understand what you were saying. So I was like, okay. Maybe I shouldn't just like <laughs> snap react to this in the comments if I don't fully understand it. So I thought about it. I sat back and gave it some time. I just kind of like got curious about what kind of like critique you were trying to give. And then like over time I read more and I realized that you were right. <laughs> um, but I did a little bit of scrolling through your YouTube channel and I found some videos from like around the same time. There was like a vlog where you were kind of like saying that you had this like epiphany that we were thinking about ADHD all wrong and that you wanted to start deconstructing it. So I'm wondering if like there was anything that happened around that time that was kind of like a catalyst for you to start questioning the pathology paradigm. Oh, that's a great question. And I had no idea that you had looked at those old YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. I like to learn. I'm not even I'm not even sure which video you're talking about because I can't bear to go back and look at them. <laughs> but um I would say that I mean I must have had some specific epiphany around that time, but I would say that I had been questioning the pathology paradigm for quite a long time and I can in in regard to my son who was diagnosed with ADHD, he's now almost 19 and he was diagnosed when he was seven. Um, And when we were thinking about getting him an ADHD diagnosis or thinking about getting him an ed psych evaluation because he was having so much trouble in school, I remember very specifically being on the beach um, with some friends and watching him playing on his boogie board just like so intensively, like with such utter focus and concentration (laughs) and just like, um, really perfecting some skills on that and, and saying to my friend who was standing next to me who happens happened to be a psychiatric nurse, like, obviously he doesn't have ADHD. Look at how focused he is. And she said, oh, actually, hyperfocus is part of ADHD. <laughs> and I remember thinking and saying to her, oh, my God, they will pathologize anything. Um, yeah. And so, like, it, it was already in my mm-hmm. head that, like, how can you – look at what this kid is doing and call it something like hyperfocus and frame that as a pathology when it was so clearly like him being in his element and mastering a skill in all of the ways that like we want kids to do. Right. So like, that's the first moment. And that was like, even before he was diagnosed. So he must've been like six or something, six or seven years old. So that's over 10 years ago. Anyway, I would say that in my own in my own sort of mind, I think that the epiphany came when I started looking at um, research on creativity outside of the realm of ADHD, and realized that what these researchers around creativity were were describing were so many of the qualities that I saw in myself and other ADHD people, but they were describing them in non-pathological ways. And that's sort of when I started to make the realization Mm -hmm. that like there's these two separate 
worlds of research and two separate paradigms. One is about creativity, and later I came to think of it as also about design, and this other world where neurodivergent people are getting pathologized and they're and they're not talking to each other. Yeah, I've noticed that too. And we talked about, I guess, videos and TikToks in our in our episode where that really embodied what pathologization meant. And there was this one TikTok by this uh, by this person that was diagnosed with ADHD that just ran through a bunch of symptoms, basically being like, "You guys, like." these are things that I do. And it's funny because we went through all these symptoms and basically talked about how they're things that people do all the time in different contexts. And, and one of them was uh, what you're talking about, which is this hyper-focus, which is just really people having an easier time focusing on things based on their interest. And that is something all human beings do to varying degrees. <laughs> right. And there's this whole body of research as well around the concept of flow, um, mm-hmm. which it's, you know, which is very big in the world of creativity and is also kind of in a creepy way getting co-opted by the sort of productivity culture and the Silicon Valley kind of, you know, entrepreneurship bro culture. But if you, oh, yeah. but if you so look as long at as it's beneficial for capitalism. <laughs> exactly. I guess it'll be exactly. And in fact, that was actually that was actually one of the places where that epiphany happened. In fact, that might have been what I was talking about is I was watching an um a YouTube, a TED talk by some guy whose name I don't remember. Um, and he was talking about flow and he was talking about it very mm-hmm. much in this, like, if we could just get mm-hmm. people into a state of flow, then they would become so productive right. and it would be so great for capitalism. Yeah. But what he had, mm-hmm. the research he cited, which I never did track down, but basically he said that the research that he had looked at suggested that a state of flow comes from hypo prefrontality which is basically poor executive function like that, mm-hmm. that it is precisely poor executive function that requires us that, leads to that, that. we need yeah. to get into that state of flow. And then I was like, wait just yeah. a minute. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, we, we talked a little bit in our, um, when we were talking about diagnoses and then the DSM five about um, how all of the divergent traits are shaped on some sort of a normal and standard and that standard being, Capitalism, basically, exactly. whatever is making the de- de- whatever defines an ideal capitalist worker. So we talked about monofocus as the standard for attentiveness, which is the the length of a long length of time spent towards single monofocus and tunnel visioning towards this one task as being exactly the norm and the gold standard, and any divergence from that as being abnormal. And well, and, and we talked about how creativity essentially requires you to be able to focus on not just many things at once, but also have this very nonlinear way of focusing and then being able to not just do one thing for a long period of time. Right. I have often quipped that executive function, which is precisely the paradigm that you're describing, that monofocus, sort of goal-oriented um, paradigm, that it is, in fact, a set of capitalist values masquerading as skills. You know? Right. Yeah. And then normal then becomes how well are you able to conform and assimilate under capitalism and how much do you struggle under that system, basically. Right. So in that context now, I really understand why you said hashtag fuck executive function. (laughs) Because essentially you were saying like fuck these capitalist values that we're being told are wrong if we don't have them or we're like broken or whatever. Yeah, but I, that's what we experienced too. Like, I think we we re, we had to think about our own journeys of how we got radicalized and arrived at this understanding of neurodivergence. Because when we were working together and, and making posts about the non 
uh, pathological model of, of, of thinking of divergence, then we got so many people doing the same thing to us, which is, which I think makes a lot of sense if we think about trauma responses is, is yeah. people that have deeply uncomfortable, heightened emotional triggered responses to something that they're seeing that reminds them of genuine things in their life that have happened that have been invalidating that have led to them being suppressed, their pain being repressed, and other people in their life possibly negate the experiences that they have. And just because they see someone now saying that this is not the paradigm <laughs> that that you're used to, then automatically there's all this anger. But we know with like, at least under the context of trauma, it's well understood that when you have these emotionally heightened responses, you're going to be defensive, you're going to project, and you're going to not be able to in that immediate moment, unless you take a pause, be able to critically analyze and understand yeah. even what, what is being said. Yeah. And once you do that, then you can have an informed response. But we often see that knee-jerk reaction that people have, which is, oh my God, I hate this and I hate you. And duh, <laughs> which makes total sense. But again, it's interesting how the world of like trauma also sometimes is separate from the idea, even though it is a, um, under the umbrella of neurodivergence. Yeah. But there's a lot of these things I think people understand in trauma, but like don't necessarily incorporate that understanding into all of these other forms of neurodivergence. Exactly. I would also say um, that... Uh, that the way that the mainstream neurodivergent community understands the term executive function is really different than the way that the theorists of executive function understand it and the way that it's being deployed in schools um, it's, you know, and in workplaces. I think that often executive function gets reduced to things like, oh, I lose my keys a lot and I can't. Mm -hmm. be on time to appointments and even sometimes like it's hard for me to feed myself like those things get <clears throat> those are sort of the ways that people understand what executive function means you know because it because we have this really like we have a lot of really bad theory in the sort of medical model of neurodivergence mm -hmm. and then that gets watered down even more um you know into sort of really mainstream tropes and and so when somebody yep. sees me say fuck executive function what they think i'm saying is you don't really have a hard time feeding yourself and it, you know like right. that's no big deal right. negating their right. negating their suffering but something some really way. specific and real in their lives and not like a like a big conceptual paradigm you know so i have been i have been much more careful since i made posts like <laughs> that and did get like a lot of injured feedback from people who didn't stop to think about it, like Justin, um, to be a little bit bit more careful about what it is that I mean when I say executive function. Um, so we we have that conversation about um, whether we should think about how we're framing. Like, okay, we do understand your suffering, we do understand your pain, and it's interesting because what you're describing is what generally happens to everything in the cycle of uh, like just movements that are co-opted by neoliberalism. So you have some radical root and, and political revolution that is then co-opted by neoliberalism in order to make it palatable and profitable by capitalism, which is what's happening to neurodivergence yeah. now. Because in order to market products to a ideal consumer base, you need to dilute down the political the political roots because the political roots are abolitionist. And that just does not fit when you're trying to sell products. So that happens to everything from, from like, the whole Black Lives Matter movement to now what's happening to neurodivergence, which is just interesting because it's like the roots of neurodivergence and even the term being coined by like uh, Judy Singer and people rarely have an understanding of like what that term actually means, I think, in, in the dominant mainstream social media culture of how it's used now because it is so pathologizing and it's so removed 
from the um, original. But I think we thought about what, like, should we then be careful? Because now I think it's more understood in the political realm that, well, it's individualism that leads for people to be like that, that, that gets them to be so personally defensive and hurt and, and, and think that their experience is being devalued, devalued in some way. And therefore that they're so focused in their day to day on, on seeking out solutions and answers to their own crisis that they forget that this is like a shared pain and, and shared suffering. So solutions can be shared. And I think politically now there's more of a push to, actually let people sit with that discomfort, like say it like it is and, and, and point things out and be, be radical in your language because there are people that are at the tipping point of where they're willing to learn. They're just enough open-minded to where sometimes, like just said, they might get angry and then they might actually like sit with that com- discomfort and use that to catalyze awakening of some sort. I, I would agree 100% with your entire analysis. And I would, the only caveat that I would make for my own practice is that I mean, I, I'm getting less and less interested in sort of placating people and making them comfortable, but I, I am very interested in defining my terms clearly so that people mm-hmm. aren't reacting mm-hmm. to something that they think I'm saying, that they're they actually that, reacting yeah. to what I am actually saying, <laughs> you know? Sure. Yep. So that, that's the only caveat that I would make in terms of my own practice is that I'm just trying to get really clear about what my terms are so that we're at least being reactive to the right. You're at least being reactive to the right thing, you know? That's accessibility, though, I think, right? Like, I think academic yeah, spaces exactly. in general be so jargon oriented. Exactly. And I think, yeah, in the work that we do, we try to not use as many big political words as much as possible, or if we use them, then explain them. Exactly. Because we think like that core understanding of all these concepts, anyone and everyone can understand if you relay them accessibly. Exactly. I totally agree with that. So, Marta, you were diagnosed with ADHD like kind of late in life, right? Yeah. I, yes. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a story, but I, which I can tell, but... Anyway, go ahead with your question. Well, I my question is like, did that serve any purpose for you? Or like, what did that mean for your life? Because I think like people get stuck in this like self-pathologizing because it does serve purposes yeah. for them. And so I'm wondering if you experienced that. Well, I would say that um, I was going through a really terrible divorce and was seeing a psychiatrist for both medication management around anxiety and depression and for therapy. He was uh, He's an unusual psychiatrist in that he does do just psychodynamic talk therapy. He also is a scientist and does bench science. So he does a lot of things. Um, and I was pretty sure that I, ha- that I was ADHD. And he was actually the one who was resistant to putting that label on me. And what I now realize is because he doesn't really believe in the pathology paradigm himself. Um, And I kind of insist, I mean, I didn't really completely understand that at the time, but I kind of insisted we didn't actually do a formal diagnosis. Like I never went through the whole range of testing and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. But I said, could we just try some medication to just see if that would be helpful? Because I was really quite distressed at that point in my life and really unable to focus. And, um, he said that he would prefer not to put me on stimulants, that he would rather you, um, try Stratera, which is uh, basically mm-hmm. a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Um, and we tried that and it worked really well. 
And in retrospect, I'm quite certain that it was largely a placebo effect, but in the way that placebos <laughs> have real effects, it did have a real effect for me. Um, and having that like explanation of, of ADHD did make a difference in the, in that period for a short amount of time. Um, and it was helpful. And, but I would say that the main way that it was helpful was that it gave me like a, like a, um, a search term essentially <laughs> to mm -hmm. find my people, yeah. you know, and the people that I initially found were very mainstream. Um, and, mm -hmm. and there was a period of time when I found them really empowering. Like I found Jessica McCabe on, of how to ADHD and like I watched her videos and they really moved me in some ways initially, you know, um, because mm -hmm. I felt like, Oh, people are, these people are describing experiences that I have struggled with for so long and had so much shame about for so long that, um, that now I have a different way to understand that. So it was really helpful mm -hmm. in that way initially, both for the sort of, I'm really quite sure it was a placebo effect of the drugs and also to like give me entree into a community um, that, that eventually I found my way into um, less mainstream and more radical um, kinds of community around neurodivergence that I don't know that I would have found without that initial label. Um, and significantly, mm -hmm. what I found were autistic people. <laughs> and and yeah. autistic people were so much more radical than ADHD people mm -hmm. were. And for a while, I was like, oh, I want to hang with the autistic people because they're so much more <laughs> radical and cool. But then I felt like all awkward, like am I slumming? And I don't know, like I was really bored <laughs> by it being appropriative. And then eventually, I like started mm -hmm. to self-identify as autistic and felt fine about that. So, um, but yeah, so I guess I would say that, that having the label um, did very much help me f get entree into the sort of larger, more radicalized discourse. And I'm not sure if I would have found my way into that without it. But I don't really mm -hmm. use those labels very much anymore at all. Like I use neurodivergent, but even that I don't really love. Um, I don't talk a lot anymore about being specifically ADHD or being specifically autistic um, because I just find those labels that are so tied to the DSM and to the medical pathology model no longer useful for me personally anyway. Yeah, I've been kind of like struggling with that too because I'm like, how do I get people to hear, like the people that I want to hear these critiques while also not like totally wanting to call myself an ADHD -er, mm -hmm. even though I still like, like when you read, when I read about ADHD, like it describes me like, right. and I've had those experiences. So there's this like kind of conundrum there that I don't really know how to like grapple with. I have, I think in a way though, sorry, <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say that I have a similar problem when I'm like making thumbnails for my YouTube videos or trying to like decide what to call them like you have to call them something that's going to make people click on them in the first instance right and so I tend to use ADHD way more than 
I do when I'm actually talking in the video. Like in the video, I will talk much more about neurodivergence, but I often will put the word ADHD in the thumbnail because I know that like even I initially might not have clicked on a thumbnail that didn't have the word ADHD in it. So anyway, it is a conundrum. Yeah. No, but I think that's that's a good point. I think like the whole like adding the label because it makes sense to some people and it doesn't necessarily like offend anybody. I think sometimes we tend to be reactionary eventually when we know that a lot of people are listening and watching and reading our our work. Sometimes it can lead to this like pre- proactive uh, you know, filtering of yourself and trying to water yourself down or be more radical, but then doing it all in relation to this anticipated backlash right. that you're going to get. And you end up being so reactionary that I think you forget that sometimes that you do have control and agency over how you choose to use these terms because they are so arbitrary. And if that is the model that we're using, they are so arbitrary that you can use them however you want. And sometimes maybe that pushes people to then redefine what it looks like. Cause I think then people come to my page to see the word ADHD or whatever in my bio, and then they see the material I'm producing. And then it might set off this cognitive dissonance, which is like, wait, but if you do, then why are you talking about like medications not being helpful? And, the, and I'm like, okay, well maybe, but that's a starting point for you to be like someone that shares something with you doesn't actually have your political opinions. And maybe you should look at that deeper. <laughs> but this is why, like, I really like your work, Marta, and your like design thinking framework, which we can talk about next um, because I feel like, so I've read a lot of like academia critiques of the like pathology and like ADHD as a construct and they're always critiquing it from like outside in. And I'm like, okay, but wait, this is describing like an experience that like right. me and other people are having. So it's hard to like, I, it, I don't really know a lot of other people that are making this critique from like inside that experience and like acknowledging that it is a real experience, but also like we don't have to pathologize it. So can you tell us about your framework and the ways that you're trying to like reframe these things outside of pathology? Yeah, sure. Um, I sort of stumbled into the world of design and I'm, and I'm, not, a, I'm not a trained designer at all. I, I, I do have a sort of theoretical mind and so I'm very in, interested in critical theory. Um, but I haven't actually even yet dived into the, there's like a whole world out there about design and about design thinking that I've yet to explore, but just from the sort of basic understanding that I have of it, um, that anybody could get through just a little bit of Googling, honestly, it struck me that like a lot of the ways that designers think and a lot of the, um, the sort of paradigm of design thinking is very much native in many ways to neurodivergent minds. It just seems to me, or at least is to mine and to a lot of neurodivergent people that I know. I I always hesitate to make these sort of sweeping generalizations about how neurodivergent people are or how the X kind of people (laughs) are. But, but it does seem to me that if as between, and especially once I started contrasting it with executive function, as between executive function and as, as a paradigm that is uniquely, as Aisha was saying, is, is uniquely attuned to the needs of capitalism, um, I think that di- design thinking is a paradigm that, that we're just better at, that we're just, we come to more naturally, um, but that there isn't really... And so just briefly, design thinking is a process, is an iterative process that is 
that is creative and loopy and um, divergent that starts with like trying to solve a problem with empathy, like trying to identify a problem with empathy and then come up with prototypes and kind of experience. It's almost a scientific process, you know, of experimentation, um, discovering what isn't working with the solution you came up with and then trying something new. So it's just a very um, ongoing, iterative process in which failure can be reframed as just information, right? It's just information for the next go at it, at solving the problem. Um, and it seems to me that, that like we, we do that in our modern capitalist world, there is room for designers, but it's very, it's very small um, and it's very um, gatekept. You know, it's like a very elite group of people who are allowed to work in this way, you know. Um, and, you know, like at, at the MIT Media Lab, this is how they work, <laughs> you know, at mm -hmm. Apple, at the highest levels, this is how they work, right? But you can't have a whole world full of design thinkers. You can't have schools full of kids who are just like chasing after some interesting idea and and experimenting with new solutions to the problems that they identified. Like like they those kinds of people are not going to be good cogs in the wheels of capitalism, right? They're not going to be good <laughs> yeah. factory workers. And so my sense is that um, – this natural tendency, and I'm not even sure that isn't specifically a natural tendency of neurodivergence. I think that it's just, I think, I think it's just like how human beings are meant to be in the world. <laughs> like I think. Yeah. I mean, when we look at symptoms, I think we can see that like when we, we when we talked about everything from like time blindedness yeah. to hyper focus to, to forgetfulness or the lack of attention. I mean, these are pointing to innate ways of, of existing that are unnatural for everybody. And I feel like certain people just have a harder time adapting. But all of that, I really think, is a result of trauma. And yeah. all of these several environmental variables that have gone into shaping their individual experience and how hard it's been for them specifically to conform to these systems. And that, I think, is, is a determinant for how much someone really struggles to conform versus someone else who has an easier time assimilating. But that doesn't mean that they actually like doing it or that that, it, that is natural for, for human beings to do. You, you are totally singing my song, Aisha. Like I always I like to say that <laughs> that neurotypical people suffer also under the regime right. of executive function and late capitalism and all of the rest of it. Right. But they are they are just able they are capable of conforming to those structures not well and not happily and not with great mental health. And I think that for a lot of neurodivergent people, we're just literally not capable of it. And so it is just enormously traumatizing to us. And then, um, and that, so, you know, we're just sort of natural designers, but we're forced to be executives <laughs> and, and that's really traumatic. And then what happens, this is the truly twisted part of it in my mind is that, the trauma of not fitting in actually creates most mm -hmm. of the symptoms that then get right, labeled as being right. neurodivergent. Like I'm not even convinced that most of the symptoms that we associate with neurodivergence are actually native to our brains and our neurology, oh, but are actually right. the results of trauma 
Um, right. Yeah. And shame. And I, shame. I wish, I wish, and shame, shame yeah, which is like a very defining trauma trait. Exactly. Right? I would say that shame <laughs> is, a, is a form of trauma for sure. So I, th- I really wish the worlds of like, just when we think of neurodivergence, we automatically think of like ADHD, autism, and then that could be bridged more with trauma. I think there would, there is now much more awareness and general practice of understanding of social systems and uh, a model of disability that includes understanding of capitalism and how it breaks us, I think, within the framework of trauma, just because you've had to step outside a little bit of the medical model to be able to think of trauma in a systems dynamic. But I think I wish that was applied more towards other forms of neurodivergence. But and I also am thinking the more levels of marginalization you have, there's just like more rocks on your back. And sometimes then that leads to it is like capitalism to some extent since birth has put us into like fight or flight inevitably, right? Like we're never really guaranteed life and we're never guaranteed safety, security and stability. So we always have a survival threat, which is just capitalism that's ever present. And it is complex trauma to varying degrees to all of us that then spend our whole lives trying to earn the right to survive. And I think for people that have it worse, so the less resources that you have, that less access to resources you have and the poorer that you are, and a lot of times, the more you are forced sometimes to do things that you absolutely do not want to do and can't do, but have to do to be able to like put food on the table. And I don't even think people think of that when it comes to quote unquote neurodivergence. It's like so much of it is socially constructed. And it also relies on you having access to a diagnosis and the healthcare system and certain models of it and all of that, whereas so many other people don't even have that kind of luxury to think about themselves in that in that manner and and just have to do whatever it takes because this system is really forcing them into into that level of survival survival response i guess i agree entirely completely and i think that there's all kinds of twisted ways that capitalism obviously and white supremacy intersect and um yeah and and then and then intersect with the whole issue of neurodivergence absolutely absolutely and I think gatekeeping is interesting that if we think about labels and when people like we all talk about, like you can just, you know, self-identify as as whatever. And, 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 and maybe that does something for you to be able to make sense of your experience in this world. But it's interesting because we get that a lot when we talk about different types of neurodivergence and capitalism where we get like, oh, you should listen to this person because they have this diagnosis and and whatnot. So it's like this. People have a tough time even recognizing that they're saying contradictory things. If they're saying that people can self-diagnose and identify with anything and that this is a fluid experience and then you're also gatekeeping based on who can and can't say what they can say based on what they identify as. And then we thought talk about access and how people don't even know that neurodivergence exists and they might just think that, you know, the experiences that they're having, they have to conform because that's the life they have. So it's like none of this really makes any sense because it contradicts with each other. Yep. <laughs> well, Sorry, going back to shame, because I think this is like really important to to like break apart. Like, how do you think the effects of shame are being pathologized within these like constr- like diagnostic constructs? I think that um, that shame almost always um, manifests as avoidance or one of the mm-hmm. many ways that shame will manifest mm-hmm. is through like we avoid shame is just such a toxic experience and such a toxic emotion that we will avoid the things that make, I mean, it's, I, I talk about shame, but you can really talk about shame and trauma almost interchangeably. Like I think that shame is a trauma, you know? So 
so I think that shame can um, cause us to avoid things, which then looks like procrastination, looks like an inability mm-hmm. to follow through on projects and assignments and tasks. I think that shame, just like any trauma, as Aisha was saying earlier, makes us emotionally reactive, um, makes us, uh, you know, triggers things that make us Mm -hmm. look like, you know, we don't have any control over our emotional lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Those -hmm. are just a couple that come right off the top of my head as like, classically understood to be neurodivergent traits that I think are actually rejection, the supposed um, rejection sensitivity, (laughs) even this new one that Barclay's coming up with Mm -hmm. that you have been having such fun with Jess, the sluggish cognitive Uh, tempo, right? Oh, no, no, it's a, well, that's another thing he's trying to make into a disorder, but emotional um, dysregulation, Mm-hmm. deficit yeah. I mean the, I think yeah. is something that he's saying it's like yeah. they're all like we have this natural deficit to like not manage our emotions right. and they're what they're describing every single one of them is basically a trauma response and the trauma is yeah. and like and Dodson with a completely straight face Dodson um, who came up with the 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 term rejection sensitive dysphoria he addressed the issue of trauma when he was, you know, coming up with this and, and insisted that, no, it's not related to trauma because my (laughs) clients haven't, you know, who have this, haven't been traumatized. They don't have trauma in their (laughs) lives. And I'm like, we have trauma from the moment (laughs) we've taken our first breath. Like trauma is just like the condition of exist it's like an existential condition of existence of human life mm-hmm. under late capitalism especially espe- under yep, especially yep. if you are a person of color or a trans person or a yep. neurodivergent person or a disabled person in any sort of way like you are living in trauma from the moment that you start breathing and so it, it just it's and i think go ahead and I think this, I think the way you look at trauma and understand now that it's like every, a very eternal experience that all of us have that's shared in collective. I think it's interesting for me to come from, so I was politicized first and I've done like grassroots organizing for a decade and then got, uh, entered the world of neurodivergence and understood a little bit more about my own ADHD and then trauma and whatnot. So it was interesting for me coming into this space is instantly kind of seeing that there is a serious like lack of political awareness and knowledge in these communities and they're very neoliberal, very, very, very commodifying capitalist, yep. and basically are so removed from every other struggle because the framework of abolition, and, and again, that's where like prison and police abolition is where I, I did a lot of the work in community. It's the baseline understanding is that human beings experience a lot of shame when they do things that like harm others or do things that, that potentially are seen as falling out of the norm. And what they should receive is compassion and community and support, which is a form of, which is what accountability should mean. And that's how accountability is framed in abolition, uh, where you don't have a punitive culture. You have a culture where you make it acceptable to make mistakes and to even commit harm as long as you're able to receive community support and love and, and, and way to drive past that and grow and use that as like a catalyst for your evolution. And Basically, that's the whole understanding for the framework of why prisons and police and any kind of punitive justice just does not work because everybody experiences shame 
so in so many right. ways from systems to interpersonal shame and that you can actually make that a beautiful process if people are able to improve their relationships and the bonds that they have in community. And that's the whole framework of abolition. So me coming in and seeing this, like the, the way that it's symptomized, symptomized, I guess, symptomized um, and turned into something that's like this innate. So emotional dysregulation then, which happens when people undergo shame or something that every single human being experiences. And it's just ironic that for me it was so obvious, but then I had to understand that maybe radicalizing like people yep. and maybe making political information more accessible would get people to understand that there's a whole world exi that exists out here where people are already building alternative systems of community care based on the idea that, that shame should not be a thing. Guilt might be used to learn more about how we can grow and how we might harm other people, but shame is not really productive. 100%. And I, and I like, sorry, going back to the whole question of, of, right from the beginning of like, how did I, uh, what's my relationship to the pathology paradigm and what was the sort of insight that led me out of it? I mean, I too have a long, long history of having been radicalized previous to my entree into the world of neurodivergence. You know, like I came out as queer before we even used that word <laughs> in the 1980s. And I was a pretty <laughs> radical feminist back then. And um, and I've done lots of work around anti-racism and anti-poverty work um, throughout my life. And so this this just feels like, honestly, um, sort of the latest iteration of the of the work that has kind of and the, the work and the critical perspective that has kind of defined my whole life. Um, I've just it feels to me like I'm just now taking that into this um, sort of paradigm of neurodivergence now. But that's important, I guess, for us. I think that's our that's for me and Marta, like a unique experience in that we entered the political realm first. We're in community first with other people, yep. had different forms of this community support where we understood maybe parts of our identity in much, much more of a collective framework yep. in where our suffering ultimately became more of a political shared suffering. Absolutely. So we found alternative ways of expressing our suffering and then seeking solutions with other people and alongside other people. And so when we arrived at this understanding of, of who we were in the caveat of neurodivergence, it, that our arc at realizing, wait, the current framework is really messed up and, and, and maybe we need a little bit more of a critical political analysis here. Yep. That happened much faster. And Jess and I talk about this all the time because I think now, especially for Gen Zers, they're getting a lot of their information virtually and they're learning all this information virtually, not in community, right. not necessarily in the context of... of uh, support systems and structures that that already exist around them where people are giving them this like support <laughs> to, to be able to validate who they are for everything that they are. So they're coming in having their identities pre-shaped, I guess, yeah. by these diagnoses where, where we talk about how diagnoses are becoming entire people's identity. And I think Jess's experience at arriving at a diagnosis was also different than ours was. And I think like, yeah, I think your experience was a little bit different in, in the arc of realizing how messed up, I guess, the model is. Yeah. Yeah, I really like I feel like I came into it not critical. <laughs> so like I was like, oh, I have executive dysfunction. Like this explains everything and like I'm bipolar and like that's why my life has been so hard and like whatever. And I like really tried to like go down that path and then it didn't work and I <laughs> was kind of like forced to like rethink it and be like, okay, what other solutions can there be here besides just like medicating and like being like you know just getting worse which is what the psychiatrist told me would happen <laughs> my whole life um wow so I guess 
this is a good segue into talking more about these solutions because I feel like in these spaces, the solutions that we're given are very like consumerist and Mm -hmm. it's all about like buy this product that's specially for neurodivergent people or like Mm -hmm. buy your neurotransmitters, like (laughs) store-bought neurotransmitters or like that cute little like meme. Um, And I am interested in what you think have been like some of the biggest solutions that you found in your life. Well, I would love to talk about the solutions, but first I just want to like add my little rant about <laughs> the ADHD industrial <laughs> complex. I, oh, yeah. I yes, actually <laughs> used that term in a live stream recently on my YouTube channel and somebody um, like called me out in a really long comment on the, um, which, which I didn't even respond to, but they were basically <laughs> like, really? ADHD industrial complex? Come on. But then they did go on to say like, oh, I was expecting like a wild eyed rant against medication and um, blah, blah, blah. And I was actually <laughs> pleasantly surprised to see that you had a more like sort of proactive, I don't know what it was. It was really weird, but I was like, really? Like you've never heard of the term industrial complex? Like that was... Yeah, like the medical industrial complex sums up that, like I the mean, whole, but the, yeah. Like the term the industrial complex co- comes from Dwight yeah. Eisenhower, who was a f- fucking yeah. Republican who identified <laughs> the, in, the, the military industrial complex. And it's like, it's right. a term of art among anybody who has any sort of critical consciousness. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, yeah. it is a real mm-hmm. thing, the ADHD industrial complex, and and it will sell you anything, you know? And <laughs> and my rant about it is that um in much the way same in the way that industrial complexes work, it offers you mm-hmm. a solution for a price that often only reinforces the problem that it is purporting to solve. So, so many of those so-called solutions that anybody, so many people are happy to, um, to sell you, what ends up happening is they don't work. Um, Inevitably, they stop working. And then they become just another site of shame and failure, which only reinforces yep. all of the issues that you had at the beginning. You have to hunt for more solutions right. then. So it just becomes this. Like once you start going down this arc, it's hard to differentiate between whether you are the problem exactly. or the thing that you're consuming is the problem. Exactly. And then it's this like. And the thing about <laughs> some of them is that they could, some of them could be helpful, but not until you get to this underlying, get at the underlying issues of the trauma and the shame. Um, I really think that that's where you have to start. Uh, And I think, and I personally think that getting a somewhat radical, a radicalized political consciousness is like the best way to do that. Right. To understand Mm -hmm. like that, that this isn't about just fixing our own individual brains so that we can get better at capitalism so that we can, so that we can compete and get our piece of the pie. You know, it's, it's a, it's a liberation Mm -hmm. movement among many, many, many liberation movements. And it has been really helpful for me to identify as a disabled person in the context of like critical disability theory, which I'm really immersing myself in right now. Um, because that, again, puts me in community with other disabled people who understand their experience in similar ways to the ways that I do. And that is, as you've been saying, Aisha, profoundly healing 
to be in community mm-hmm. with other people who understand their experiences um, as political in the same way. So, so I would say that some of those hacks and strategies and systems and products that, you know, the industry is so happy to sell you could potentially be helpful at some point. But I think that the first step has to be um, healing your own traumas around these things. And the only Mm -hmm. way that you can do that is by understanding the sort of more radical political perspective of why you were traumatized in the first place. Um, And, and I also will say that, I think that like it's it's a conundrum because how one goes about healing one's traumas is not obvious. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's not obvious and it's especially not obvious to a marginalized community um, who are often poor, who <laughs> often don't have access to resources. And even if you do yep. have access to mental health resources, they're often awful and are going to actually mm-hmm. cause more trauma than Make they're going worse. to heal. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm just a really big fan of peer support. I really think that yeah. when we find each other and just sort of share our stories with each other and reflect each other back to our, ourselves and each other, um, in yeah. compassionate, um, understanding, caring ways, that that is what has been the most healing for me. Like I did have this really kind of amazing psychiatrist who it's kind of funny because I don't think that he would consider himself at all politically radical, but I think that he does have a critical perspective, you know? Well, I mean, but that's, that's, yeah. that's, I think a case of case in point of you don't need to have these terms right, exactly. and everything down to be able to like, really, if you really reflect and try to understand the root cause of suffering, exactly. then you're going to identify systems. And if you identify systems as the problem, then you're going to conjure solutions exactly. that are holistic. And that's just the arc of radicalization without it even being labeled as such. So his, so his, so my work with him, which was ongoing for several years, I can I can point back to that and say that was a key part of my healing. But it wasn't actually about mm-hmm. like we weren't talking about neurodivergence at all and we weren't even talking about trauma as such in the ways that we talk about trauma these days. I mean, he's sort of a more old school kind of Freudian slash Jungian trained, especially Jungian trained psychoanalyst, you know, Um, but the work that we did around the traumas of my divorce, like trauma is trauma and it, and, um, and like healing those traumas led me to be a much more functional person. Um, And then also, and also then being in in a new relationship with somebody who is actually, you know, um, com- able to communicate and able to um, embrace intimacy and like do all sorts of things that I didn't have for like the first 40 years of my adult life. Um, that has been huge. <laughs> but then beyond that is just like the on and it's almost on lo- all online, um, the online community of neurodivergent people that I'm part of that has been super healing. Yeah, I think, do I mean, wanna- because our, oh, do we want to talk about the well, let me, I was let just going to say, do you want to talk about, like, what you're building uh, a little bit? Oh, yeah, I'd be happy online. to. Um, so so when I, I first started, I have a little bit of a following on Instagram, which is where Jess and I know each other from. 
Um, and when I started building my doing my work on Instagram, initially I thought I was starting a business, um, and I was hoping <laughs> to sell like um, small online small group courses to creatives. I wasn't even sure if it was specifically targeted at neurodivergent people. Um, but that didn't go so well right up front. And pretty quickly, I abandoned that whole idea of starting a business and decided that, no, this is a liberation movement. And I just want to do education and advocacy um, th through my Instagram account. So I started building that. But then eventually I did have, I actually had people come to me and say, have you ever thought about doing coaching? Have you ever thought about running some groups? I really like your work. And so I started very small and offered a number of small groups around issues of shame and creativity. Um, even though I have no training whatsoever as a coach or a therapist or anything like that, although I am an, an educator and trained and have a lot of experience as an educator. But um, even those small groups were um, were not a model that I found was really helpful, precisely because the people that I'm most interested in working with are people who are marginal, like highly marginalized, and many of them are very poor. And the only way that I could charge enough to make anything close to a living um, from small groups was just going to like basically exclude most of the people that I actually want to work with. So I came up with a model um, of a small, of a l very low cost membership community, which I host on um, Mighty Networks, which is a platform that hosts membership communities. Um, and the community is called Divergent Design Studios. And it's a community where like it, it looks a lot like a Facebook group, like you can post things and people can comment on each other's posts. But we also have events such as peer support groups and um, just general peer support groups and then peer support groups around specific issues. Um, and what else do we have? Oh, we have, you know, all the, all the rage right now, of course, is um, body doubling. Right. And I and I'm a big believer in it. And I think it really helps people for reasons that I'm not completely sure I understand. But the notion that like when you're working with somebody else in the room, either in real life or virtually, it helps you to get started on the work that well, you want to do. Yeah, I, I think that it has a lot to do with it. It's just how we operate. Right, exactly. We work a lot better when we live in So we offer a lot yeah. of virtual um, body doubling sessions, which we call studio time in our in the parlance of our community. Um, and that that is like an evolving um Thing, that community and um, I keep lowering the price <laughs> because I just want to make it be so accessible um, so there's a sliding scale and, um, and and if people can't even afford the lowest price on the sliding scale I always tell everyone that just email me and I'll send you a link free so there's really almost no barrier to entry at all and, um, and eventually what I would like to do is turn it to shift it from a business that is a solo proprietorship that it is just benefiting me financially to some sort of collective cooperative yeah. model. And I mean, we're only six months old, so it's early days. Like a commune. But yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I do have all kinds of fantasies about 
and have my whole life about um, about communes. In fact, can I just tell a really quick funny story? When I went to my 20th or 25th, I can't remember which one it was, um, college reunion, this man who I still think of as a boy because I knew him in college <laughs> came up to me, um, really wonderful man. Um, and he said, Marta Rose, he said, babies and typewriters. And I said, babies and typewriters? What are you talking about? And he said, yes. that's what you were going to have on your commune. That's what you always talked about. Like, you're going to have babies and typewriters on your commune. <laughs> and I was like, I was talking about a commune back then and like wanting to have children and write. <laughs> like, it was really actually affirming because I was like, oh, that has been like a consistent thread my whole life. Like wanting to <laughs> wanting to be in community, you and know, <laughs> and to put ideas, to, to raise children and put ideas out into the world. So, um <laughs> So yeah, so so I would love to do it in real life around housing because I do think that that's such an issue for neurodivergent people or just disabled people in general. But what I'm trying to build right now is sort of a little corner of the internet that does that. I just think it's interesting because I'm in the group and I love it. And um, we talk a lot about like how Instagram like pretends to be a community and it's like you can find your people and like you know have your whatever and it's like not it's an audience and so I think it's interesting this like uh it's still like a digital community but it is actually a space where like you can know people and it's not like there's no like ads or like algorithm that's like determining like whose post gets seen or whatever like it feels very much like the old internet mm -hmm. that you know and so it's it's interesting like it's a digital community that is actually you can actually have like real relationships through. That's so interesting know? that you say the old internet because it I hadn't really thought of it that way. But you know, I've been part of online communities since the late nineties, like really early days when my daughter was my daughter was born in ninety seven. She just turned twenty five yesterday, which freaks me out. But anyway, um, <laughs> in, when she was a baby, I was part of this like kind of radical moms group online. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was before algorithms and it was before social media. It was that we had bulletin boards. I don't even know if you guys know what bulletin mm -hmm. boards are, but like basically like, oh, yeah, it was basically like what Mighty Networks looks like. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and we were real community and I'm actually still friends with some of the women who are in that group, you know, 25 years later. Um, so I think that it is possible to do real community online. And I think that it's especially mm -hmm. something that's accessible for um, disabled people. But I do think mm -hmm. that we've gotten really confused by social media, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think we talk about it all yeah. the time where Gen Z is at a disadvantage because they're born into this, this world where fast information already exists and you have social networks where all of like everything from machine learning algorithms predicting your every move and telling you what to buy to like thousands of people somehow having opinions on what you do in your day-to-day -day is normalized yeah. and and all of that is just it's it's difficult it's it, it makes sense to me why a lot of like gen zers like come for us when <laughs> on social media platforms because i understand it's 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 i also understand when i went through that radicalization process i also got uncomfortable i also had people make me like very angry, but a lot of the times that happened in person. And when someone's in front of you, I wouldn't just scream in their face. Right. I would just stay there and listen. And I know so much about this person. So I know I don't hate them. So you know what, maybe they have something to say. And that just makes you open to other people and to new ideas. 
Yeah, but now it's like we are not people online. We're like brands. Right. So right. if you get upset by something you that just like we post yeah. online, then you just like complain to the manager or whatever. Because <laughs> like you're whatever, like they're not consuming what they want from you. So it's like you have these like parasocial relationships where the dynamic just gets really weird. And I do think though that that dynamic goes both ways. That like the the people in the audience mm-hmm. have this parasocial relationship where they think that they're friends or like they ha- they think that they have access in ways that they don't actually and also have this sense of it being like a company and a brand and they can complain to the management but i also think especially <laughs> within more vulnerable and marginalized communities like the neurodivergent community i've noticed this so much lately on instagram to the point that i almost don't go there anymore is that the creator themselves also feels betrayed by their audience. You know, they feel that their audience is their community and are their friends Mm -hmm. and that they owe them something that, um, that they're just like set up to be disappointed by, right? Like if you have tens of thousands of followers on Instagram, you, you just can't really expect them to behave in ways that you think your community should behave. And so I just think that it's like such a... Well, because you're not in community. Right, that's what I keep saying is that you have to stop feeling (laughs) let down by your community on Instagram because it's not a community. It's an audience, Mm -hmm. you know? And they Mm -hmm. don't actually owe you anything. Like, they don't. They don't owe us anything. Um, Anyway... Well, and we're like entertainment, basically, you know, like (laughs) the creators are entertainment. I think a lot of people like forget that. I, I mean, I do think that there are such opportunities. Well, I mean, they're called content creators. I think that's interesting. I hate that word so much. But like, <laughs> that's what we that's are, what though. <laughs> but we're referred to that. No, but I hate it because that's what it's become, right? Like that where our job is to churn out this like, be in this like yeah. hamster wheel making content and... Like, it also feels like the sense of obligation. And I think that's how a lot of us eventually try to move off Instagram because we realize we're feeding into it. And like, the next thing I know, I feel like I have to make a post or I have, and you're right, Marta, half of us realizing I don't have to do anything. And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all of this me trauma responses and wanting to be liked and people pleasing and all of that is driving so much of why I feel like I need to do this. But I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, but we are products essentially that people just like take off the shelf, throw away, like put it back. Like, you know, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I think, like, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think social media is a place where you can find people and start to build a community, but you have to take those people off the, like, app, which is basically just a marketplace, you know? And you have to, like, go somewhere else that is not, like, so commodified and, like, driven by, like, ad revenue and, like, anger, you know? It's sort of like in college when they would have those fairs where all the organizations would have a table and you could go (laughs) and, like, find out what was there. And But then you had to actually go to the meetings, you know? Like, like I think that that's Mm -hmm. the role that social media can play, you know, is sort of attracting Mm -hmm. like-minded people. And I do think that there is a – I do think that there's an educational component that – is real about social media and that there is sort of the potential of educating people and reaching them and even radicalizing them. But eventually the work itself is not going to happen on social media. It's not going to happen in the comment section of your posts. It's not going to happen in your DMs Mm -hmm. or in your stories. Like it's going to happen in a community that 
that started maybe as Jess was just saying on social media, but then if you've gathered enough like-minded people, then you can move them someplace else. I, I, I I have to believe that because I just find like, I was such a, I was actually a big defender of social media for quite a while because, um, because I remember the days when there was no such thing as an, a platform, there was no access to, like I, I was full of ideas and there was so much gatekeeping in media and publishing that I had no way of getting those ideas out. And social media was just like a revelation, you know, like I can have an idea this morning, I can make a post in Canva, I can put it on Instagram and thousands of people will see it and be moved by it. Like that was like amazing to me. Um, and I still think that there is something to that, um, like there are possibilities today that didn't exist in previous times, but boy, I've just seen, um, it feels like in the last year, especially just kind of this devolution. It's like the Twitterization of Instagram, you know, like it happened to Twitter first (laughs) and now it's happening to Instagram where it just becomes this like rage machine, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Marta. This has been such a good conversation. We're so happy to have you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. And um, and I'm just I just want to say that I'm just like so excited by this collaboration between you, Aisha, and you, Jess. Like, Disorderlands is going to be such an amazing contribution to the podcast landscape and to the neurodivergent community. I'm just really thrilled. Thank you for listening and also a big shout out to the 23 people who left us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us a lot. So please do drop us a five star review if you like what we're making. We are learning how to do this as we go. So I know the audio is not perfect, but we believe in embracing imperfection in this house. Just know that we're working on it and it's only going to get better from here. Subscribe to disorderland.substack.com if you'd like to receive these episodes and more in your email and send us tips or questions by writing to disorderland at gmail.com. 